0: China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Rongbing Han, an associate professor in the Department of International Affairs at the University of Georgia. We'll be discussing his recent paper, Cyber Nationalism
1: and Regime Support under Xi Jinping. Rongbin, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's truly an honor.
0: So I wanted to start out by asking about your academic and intellectual background. Where did you study and how did you become interested in online nationalism or cyber nationalism?
1: I grew up in China, had my uh, undergraduate education there. After that, I went to Singapore and then came to the United States for my PhD degree. So my interest research interest focuses on Chinese politics, especially contentious politics and cyber politics. And I've been doing research on one particular question that attracts me most, that is the resilience of the Chinese regime. And I want to understand why that is the case. My interest on nationalism and cyber nationalism partially derives from that, because that's apparently one of the answers to explain why the regime has remained resilient. Of course, there's a big literature on this, and I don't think I have time to go into it right now, but uh, feel free if you want to ask more.
0: Yeah, I'd be curious on the issue, before we get into nationalism, can you give us a summary of where the resilience discussion and debate is now i think for many listeners we're getting tired of predictions of the communist party's collapse we heard it in 76 we heard it in 89 under xi jinping we've we've had a few rounds of expectations that he's gone too far. Can you give us just an overview of where the resilience literature is nowadays? How are people assessing what is driving the continued resilience
1: of the Communist Party in, in 2021? There are way too many studies to mention all of them here, but uh, one of the earlier studies suggests uh, that we focus on how the party has adapted to the challenges. You're right. It's like there have been so many predictions about the collapse of the regime, but it's still there till now. And so for us, we have to explain why that is the case. And so earlier scholars focus on how the party has adapted to the challenges, including people like uh, Andrew Nason or David Shumbo. They have great works on that. And my work is just kind of building on them. We focus on the popular source of support to the regime in general. It's not how the party wins. Of course, it's related, but it's not just how the party adapts to the challenges. But Really, the party in itself enjoys legitimacy among the people. From the Western perspective, China doesn't have meaningful election. So that's why we tend to assume that they don't really have the legitimacy. But a lot of studies suggest that the party does enjoy popular support. For reasons like economic reform has been successful, improved livelihood, and all the things the party has been able to deliver. And another actually big group of scholars focus on nationalism as a new source of legitimacy. To a certain extent, replacing communism and ideology. So that's where my research actually factors in. So my book, earlier book, looks on online discourse competition. And especially pro-regime discourse, how that is formulated, how they actually defend the regime in online discussion. And then there I find that uh, there is strong correlation between nationalism and support for the regime. Normally nationalism doesn't necessarily mean you are going to support a certain regime, but in the Chinese case, we see that people demonstrate strong nationalistic tendency tend also to support the regime So that's actually the starting point of my research and how that's related to those Rotarian Resilience Literature.
0: I think we'll get into this later, but just while you're on this point, is nationalism, as we're thinking about it in the context of China, about support for the nation? Or is it support from the party potentially distinct from support for the nation?
1: That's a great question. It's related to the definition of nationalism and how that term is different or the same to patriotism. So to me, I define nationalism pretty in operation, pretty simply. It's like the love of one's nation. And of course, there's nuanced differences between patriotism and uh, nationalism. In the West, generally nationalism is considered as negative because it's not just associated with one's love of his own nation, but also hatred of other nations and xenophobia and all those kinds of things. Patriotism is actually more like simple, in a sense, just love of one's own nation. And both terms are very different in terms of whether you love the party. You can love your country, but doesn't love the government or the party. What we observe is there is a linkage between the two, though, in the Chinese context. Okay, so that's that's why there is this study. I wanted to see how love of the nation interact with the love of the party. And it's interesting also this echoes with like the previous demonstration of the United States. Foreign policy there they try to differentiate love of China and love of the party, differentiate from the Chinese people and the Chinese party. Based on my finding, it seems that uh, it works in certain cases, but doesn't work on other cases. So we can go into that in detail if we have time.
0: Yeah, let's, um, let's dive right in. Appreciate that. That was really helpful context. I'm going to ask one additional contextual question now that we've cleared the ground on nationalism. The paper that we're going to talk about, which was recently published in the Journal of Contemporary China, As I mentioned, the title is Cyber Nationalism and Regime Support under Xi Jinping. The subtitle of this, though, is The Effects of the 2018 Constitutional Revision. For listeners who haven't followed this, I wonder if you could give us an overview. We're talking about a revision to the PRC Constitution in the spring of 2018 that abolished the two five-year term limits for the Office of the president in the PRC, which had been added to the Constitution in 1982. I guess my questions for you are, Xi Jinping was already general secretary, and there's no term limit on that. He was also the head of the military. There's no term limit on that. Why was the ending of this term limit on the office of the presidency, why was that controversial enough where you wanted to go study how public opinion responded to it? Can you give us a little bit of a historical context on this? Of
1: course. First, I think there are actually two underlying questions. One is why Xi Jinping wanted to do this in the first place. And to be honest, we don't really have a solid answer to that question because I'm not Xi Jinping. I can't talk to him. There is no source about why he made that decision. Uh, The other part is really why other people are concerned about this. And this is the part we have ample evidence. And this is where we can talk a little bit more about the historical and the broader background, of course. So the constitutional revision is controversial because it essentially undid two very important political legacy by Deng Xiaoping, which a lot of people think is essential to China and the resilience of the regime. So one is orderly succession of leaders. Okay. So before Xi Jinping after Deng Xiaoping we have institutionalized the leader succession so we expect after 10 years there's going to be a new leader coming up and the whole process also become a little more transparent because by the second term we almost know who is actually going to show up as the next leader that pre provides a lot of prediction, and that also gives people some hope. Say, even if we don't like the current leader, 10 years, you will go, and we will have a new leader. If you look at the elite politics level, it also adds a lot more flexibility there, because we know there are factions, and uh, we know that um, not all the factions are all in the power uh, at the same time. So Xi Jinping is representing somebody. He is gone in 10 years, somebody else from another section, a faction might have an opportunity. Now he's going to be there for indefinite time. We don't know whether he is going to be taking a short term, frankly speaking. Maybe he isn't. But uh, it's likely he will. And then this plus the massive anti-corruption campaign makes it very difficult for us to expect a you know, rotation of leadership among all those factions. That would actually help destabilize the top leadership. From the public, it's not very popular either because we have used to a leadership succession. Every 10 years, we're going to expect a, a, a new leader coming up, replacing the old one, a new core of, of the leadership. So that's one point, disrupted the orderly succession of leadership. Also, the second point is that um, what Xi Jinping does by removing the presidential term limit is it harms the collective leadership principle, which has been there for quite some time within the party. So Xi Jinping, by removing the presidential term limit, indicates to the rest of the party leaders that uh, he wants to be the person, the one. And he's going to be more closer to kind of a dictatorship before that people generally recognized China as a party dictatorship with collective leadership of the leader uh, of the party now it's becoming more constant power is more concentrated on one person and that's actually not good both in terms of the image and also its implications because generally checks and balances is important and also collective leadership can avoid a lot of the problems that uh, one individual leader might make. And, And certainly, from a certain perspective, taking power all on one's own is risky for himself because you can't blame anybody else. You're taking all the responsibilities as well. So that's another problem people normally have with the presidential term limit removals. That was really helpful.
0: Something maybe we can circle back around to later, which is because as you just outlined, this was controversial. I'm curious why there wasn't more pushback within the senior leadership. Once Xi Jinping made it clear he was going to try to get rid of the one constraint on his tenure there, you know, had he already reached a point of such significant power that no one was in a position to challenge this or might there have been more support for this than maybe many of us external folks think? In other words, did he have to push this through at a significant cost or might there have been actual support for Xi Jinping staying on for another third term? I realize we don't know, but I don't know if you have any
1: informed speculation here. I actually don't know, but uh, I work with a few colleagues on another topic, which is related to this, is the massive anti-corruption campaign, which is truly unprecedented. If you look at the number of high-level officials being hunted down in the anti-corruption campaign, it's like hundreds of them. I think by now it's over 400. And it's hard for us to understand that as well in the first place. It's like it seems it's not quite a rational behavior because literally by doing that you're pissing everybody off if you truly want to consolidate power this is not actually the least risk way of doing it but if we think about it anti-corruption campaign started as early as in 2013 by 2018 when the constitutional revision is done it's already five years into it there were like already hundreds of people at very top level being thrown out of their office And those offices are presumably filled with like people who Xi feel more comfortable with. And there is some study showing that Xi Jinping has appointed a good number of his people at uh, the provincial level or above. So in that regard, we can see there was a certain level of power consolidation and concentration already being done before 2018. I think that's why the constitutional revision was able to be pushed through for two reasons. One, he was able to amass enough support. Two, the anti-corruption campaign already indicates to those potential Polands right? It's like, if you do anything here, we're able to punish you. So in that regard, my guess would be there were costs, but he nonetheless pushed through it. Or somebody under him think that's the best way to do it and pushed it through.
0: So let's talk about the cost paid, because that is actually one of the margin notes that I scribbled when I was reading your paper, is that in terms of public support, he likely paid a cost for pushing through the constitutional revisions. And of course, for a large chunk of the the population alive today, they remember 1982 and the constitutional revision was put forward and they remember 1976, which is the whole reason they pushed through the 1982 constitutional revision to put a term limit. You know, they abolished the title of chairman, was to signal to people that we've moved on from one man rule. And of course, we had the 1981 history resolution. So there was, um, this is well ingrained in popular political culture. And indeed, until the constitutional revision was put through in in spring 2018, party historiography, official party historiography held that we must never return to one man rule. And so that's why we had the constitutional revision. You wanted to investigate how opinion was public opinion was responding to this. Can you tell us just a first a methodological question? It's hard to go do polling in China. It's certainly hard to do polling about a question. Of what do you feel about Xi Jinping's position in power? How did you attempt to get some vantage point to answer this question?
1: It's challenging to <laughs> do research on politically sensitive topic in China, especially this one. Um, so when this happened, I observed through a lot of channels about how people react to it. And frankly speaking, we have to disaggregate the society here. It's like not everybody have opinion about this. And many people simply don't care, right? It's like in the vast rural area, I bet the majority of people don't really care. Or they learned until the last minute and probably didn't even give it a thing, uh about, you know, what has happened and why they should form opinion about it in the first place. Uh, My observation is there is slightly biased against this group of people. I kind of have access to like relatively more educated people, slightly more descending group of people. So you can see very strong opposition there. But for this study, I wanted to move away from it to get a relatively more neutral sample in a sense. But again, as you said, it's very difficult to do this in China. So what I ended up doing is really focusing on the overseas Chinese forum. There are advantages and disadvantages associated with that uh, um, approach. First of all, we know that this sample is not going to be representative of the Chinese population, especially the Chinese population within China. Second, it's like we will have a big group of People included in my sample that are essentially not necessarily even Chinese they might be say Taiwanese or Hong Kong people right they can have the access to the platform and they can express and so that might be actually making the situation a little bit trickier there but there are advantages first of all this is a feasible approach so we don't have to worry about state suppression or anything We can have a freer platform for people to freely express themselves, don't have to worry about censorship or anything. So that should be a more genuine sample of opinions. So that's one of the advantages. Second of all, I always actually wondered the relationship between nationalism and support of the regime. To what extent that relationship is conditioned on... The fact that the party has control over the information environment. So it's like if we study this relationship within China, there's always the problem because that information environment is subject to state control. How do we know that uh, the relationship between nationalism and support for regime is not made by the state? By focusing on a platform beyond the Great Firewall, we can actually kind of stop worrying about that to a large extent. I wouldn't say that there's no state intervention or effect, but we have the ability to control it to the minimum level so that we have more confidence in the data we have. So what I did is I scraped the comments of those users on a particular news site to all the news reports, including 30-plus reports on the constitution revision. So I then take out all those comments on the constitutional revision, code it all of them in terms of whether they are pro-constitutional revision, against, or neutral, or it's hard to tell, we don't know. And and then I was able to associate those comments with the users, and then I code the users in terms of whether their overall attitude is pro-constitutional revision, against it, or neutral, or don't know, and then I trace back those users' attitude. It's like I look back because I have a bigger database that has like thousands and thousands more of comments which people have made before the constitutional revision. So in that regard, constitutional revision is more like a natural experiment. So what the constitutional happened, a constitutional revision happened. It's a treatment to people there and people might have shifted their attitude after the constitutional revision. So I can identify whether there's an attitude change and if there's an attitude change in what direction.
0: When you're looking at the opinions expressed on the platform that you were looking at, how do you think about how meaningful the opinions expressed are? In other words, do we have any sense on are these opinions expressed almost casually, flippantly, and in no way translate into sort of actual potential, anything potential that could affect regime security or solidity. In other words, I've got lots of opinions on a lot of things. And when I'm expressing them online, they're the least meaningful because the cost to expressing them is zero. Things that I believe that I will translate into action are a different set. And it's hard to differentiate when looking at online discourse. What are Fervently held beliefs that could translate into action, whether that's positive or, ne- or, or, or negative, and what are just opinions that I'm just—it's 2 a.m. I've had, you know, I've had three beers, and I'm just feeling angry at something. Do we have any sense when studying cyber nationalism? What meaning
1: do we imbue into
0: opinions that are expressed online?
1: That's a challenging question, and frankly speaking, in this particular article, I wasn't looking for that type of expression. In other places, in my other studies, I did find like, you know, uh, the type of expression that seems to indicate a stronger likelihood of being translated into activism or any specific behavior. So this is one of the problems associated with studying public opinion in general, right? So people express something, are they going to take actions or not? And that's, there's a whole literature about how you translate something into really a collective action in particular. I don't expect people like after expressing their discontent towards constitutional revision, you know, on that particular website and then go on streets the next day. I don't think that's going to happen. Most of them are not going to do it. And that's one of the reasons I actually categorized those users I I study. It's like I look at those most active users and those less active users, and try to see whether there are differences. And my study focuses on the meaning of expression in itself. So, first of all, if we are thinking about long-term change, bigger change, one question we have to answer is like, is opinion expression itself meaningful or not, right? I personally think it's meaningful because it indicates a change. So, a lot of people are not going to do anything. But it's like we can identify their opinion and that's the first step of them if they ever are going to do anything. So in that regard, if we look at those opinion and if they change, we can anticipate next there might be some behavior change. If we don't even see opinion change, we probably don't see any behavior change. So that's that's the rationale of this study.
0: And I I interrupted you. I was just about to ask you for after you've read all of these, you've coded all these, what did you find? Um, How was the 2018 revision received and, and anything surprising
1: from the results to you? So there's some interesting studies from my personal perspective. Not all of them are surprising, but still interesting. First of all, what we find is that The policy is not generally popular so this is not surprising at all from the western perspective so many people don't like it the majority of people basically are against it and i have other evidence showing that there are people who were previously support supporting the regime or pro regime literally melted down because of this but this is not within the data set so this is the first finding the second is really about the interaction between nationalism and their attitude towards this particular change in the constitution, and we know that uh, nationalism has a very strong positive correlation with pro-regime attitude, and my analysis also confirmed that point. And I also kind of identify the correlation between nationalism and whether they have the attitude change, and it shows that uh, those nationalists, strong nationalists, tend to have pretty strong reaction to this. And in in fact, some of those non-nationalists changed, quite some of those changed from like, don't care, but they showed slight pro-regime discourse because of the Constitution or upon the Constitution revision many, or not many, actually a small percentage, but considerable amount of those nationalists become critical. They previously were pro-regime, now they become neutral, or they previously were more neutral and they become critical. So we see that. So more people who are like they were pro-regime, they become neutral. Can I ask a question,
0: um, Rongbing, because I was thinking on that slice of the, of the sample that was nationalist and went more critical, you're phrasing that as they sort of more critical of the regime. I guess my question is, I, I wonder if you could be, in this case, you're critical of Xi Jinping for threatening the regime by pushing through a change which undermines the institutional foundations of power. So I guess my question is is, is, is thinking about the regime as a bundled term? in this instance, the right way? Because in fact, you could be saying, look, Xi Jinping is threatening the Communist Party's hold on power. So it's less anti-regime and just actually frustration with Xi himself.
1: That's a very good question. Actually, I think your point is totally valid there. And uh, unfortunately, I wasn't doing that distinction in my research. And I think there's a reason why I didn't do it. Because The change in the constitution is not just Xi Jinping, right? It it depends how you attribute or blame it for. So people might blame Xi Jinping for it. Or people might blame the entire regime for it. It's like you failed to stop it. It's like there are so many people voting. Almost everybody voted yes. I I think there were two votes didn't say yes, right? It's like people generally don't really... I mean, that's based on my data shows that uh, there isn't a stark distinction they're trying to make between Xi and the regime. So that's why I didn't make that uh, distinction. But the the nuanced distinction does exist. That does exist because when they elaborate their point, some of them did say it's like, initially, I think the regime has hope. Now the hope is gone. So essentially, they still think that the regime is something different than Xi Jinping. So you're definitely right there. I wanted to
0: just for the sake of time, go to kind of big takeaways here for you. I mean, what I took from reading the paper is yet another reinforcement of what should be an obvious idea, but oftentimes isn't, which is there is still political discourse in amongst Chinese people about the future tra- trajectory of Chinese political system. And by virtue of how you did your study, you had to do it that way because yes, it's getting harder to get better you know, samples of public opinion. Actually, it's impossible about questions like, like, like this. But I, I wanted to ask you the kind of so what question. What is the implication of this paper to you? What, what is the kind of big takeaway coming out of this research? What does it tell you about Xi Jinping? What does it tell you about regime support? What does it tell you about differences in public opinion about China's political system?
1: So there are a bunch of things I want to mention. The first is actually uh, the pluralization of expression and appealing inside China. Even though my sample is primarily based on a website that's overseas, but I did observe a lot of those criticisms towards the constitutional revision on different platforms within China. The problem is that uh, one, they get censored very quickly. To, it's very hard to systematically gather them, especially considering that they're censored. And second, it's that uh, considering people are self-censoring, the amount of criticism I saw within China was very impressive. So even under Xi Jinping, online expression at least, or expression in general and opinion in general, is pretty diverse in China, very pluralized. That's something we typically sometimes ignore or don't actually pay enough attention to, which is pretty straightforward and apparent, but that's that's one thing. The second is really about the relationship between nationalism and regime support. This work problematizes the relationship between the two. We tend to assume that nationalism is associated with regime support within the Chinese context. But apparently, when things like the constitution revision happen, the relationship can change. What I find is that uh, people with strong nationalist tendency may become kind of um, against the regime or less pro-regime. So it's not that the regime can just enjoy the support from the nationalists. They have to cultivate it. They have to maintain it. A third point I wanted to mention is that uh, we might have to study like events. And the impact, subsequent subsequent consequences, on Chinese politics. In my case, it's like constitutional revision was an event. Before that, people have a overall evaluation or attitude towards Xi Jinping and the regime. And then the constitutional revision happened. People's opinion changed. And so after that, if we see this case as the regime losing some credit or Xi Jinping losing some credit there are other cases they may be gaining credit. So popular opinion or popular support towards the regime is really a dynamic process. So this is kind of relevant to what is happening right now, for instance, in trade war, in COVID.
0: So I wanted to ask you as a final question, now with the So, we're recording on the 4th of November. It's a Thursday. On Monday, we're going to have the 6th plenum with a a third history resolution. And I think we're really now entering into the period where, where many of us are thinking about the 20th Party Congress. You yourself earlier in this discussion raised the possibility that Xi Jinping, you know, we don't know. You're right. He might not take a third term. I wanted to ask your assessment on, and I realize this is speculative, so I won't hold you to this, but your assessment on how, if Xi Jinping takes a third term, that is likely to be received. You know, one of the things we were talking about before we recorded, maybe by taking, uh, getting rid of the term limit limit on the office of the presidency in 2018, he's already kind of front-loaded the criticism and, and already socialized this idea and so maybe there won't be it's it's actually not that controversial in the same way i think most of us just assume it's going to happen it won't be a shock how do you assess this will be received and again i realize we're talking about a narrow selection of the population here but will this have the same the same catalyst effect as the constitutional revisions or not
1: i think there will be criticism when it happens because it's like before everything actually happened, people still have some hope that's not going to happen. So when it actually happens, people are going to criticize him and the regime for that. But you're right that um, uh, people are already socialized. It's like we have been prepared mentally for this by the 2018 constitutional revision. So it's already done. We won't be surprised, even though we will feel disappointed when it actually happens. And plus, I think, as I mentioned, that uh, uh, we have to understand the particular context in which when this happens. Right now, if you look at the news in China, the social media sphere, there are so many things going on. Some of them are not very good for the regime, but some of them are actually like, you know, the Taiwan issue, the cross-strait relations. The nationalist sentiment is very high. And on that issue, Xi Jinping might actually earn some credit there, indeed, there were people saying, in my sample, saying that so far as he unifies Taiwan, he can sit there forever, as long as he wants, right? So if people expect him, it's like, do something about Taiwan during his third term, there are going to be a lot of support. And also because of like the anti-corruption campaign, how China handled COVID and all those kinds of things have convinced a good number of people who accept Xi's rule. There are some criticisms, but still many people think he is doing his job properly. And that probably also helps socialize people a bit. It's not just like we get used to the horrible things it, it did. But also it's like people say, look at his achievements. He's a good leader. Let's support him for another five years.
0: It might be the equivalent of... There was the uh, are you better off now than you were four years ago test for U.S. presidential elections. Rongbin, I, I want to thank you. This has been a really, really fascinating conversation and, and highly recommend that everyone reads the paper. This is just such a fascinating space and will become only more important that we keep in mind some of these, these ideas about there still being lively discourse and contestation and divergence of opinion within China and within Chinese about the, the future of the country. So your work will consistently be important as we try to, uh, try to monitor this. So thank you very much and, and, and really appreciated the conversation. Hi Pekingology listeners, I'm Bonnie Lin, director of the CSIS China Power Project and host of the China Power Podcast. I'm inviting you to listen to our conversations with leading experts on the challenges and opportunities presented by China's growing
1: power. We discuss topics such as Chinese military capabilities, China's relations with other countries, and critical issues in U.S.-China relations. You can listen
0: and subscribe to the China Power Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on chinapower.csis.org.
1: If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS
0: podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power,
1: The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify,